Hello. Before we jump into the show, we need to shout out our awesome new sponsor, Marquee TV. Man, I was so excited when we got the news about the sponsor. You all might remember from a few weeks ago that I talked about my new Shakespeare project where I'm learning everything I can about Macbeth. It felt like we said the name Shakespeare out loud and the marquee people appeared and said, <laughs> we gotcha. It really did. Yeah. In case you're not familiar, Marquee TV is a streaming service. They have theater, ballet, opera, documentaries. There's a bunch of behind-the-scenes content of productions. Basically, it's a fun way to nerd out about the arts. Yeah, it's a streaming service that will take you to the best theaters in the world from the comfort of your own sofa. I've already added so many things to our watch list. Did you know there's a ballet based on the works of Beatrix Potter? I did. They've got a little preview video of somebody dancing around in a somebody, rabbit costume. Peter Rabbit doing ballet. <laughs> I also added a few hip-hop dance shows just to balance out the dancing bunnies. Yeah, hip-hopra. <laughs> That's what they call it. They do. It's so fun. Yeah. Mozart's Requiem yep. from the London Philharmonic Orchestra and a bunch of Shakespeare plays, including Richard II starring my pretend best friend, David Tennant. And Judy Dench talking about her long relationship with Shakespeare in a master class. Yeah, I love Judy Dench. Sure. But David Tennant. Yeah, that's quite a battle there. Okay, there's a special deal for our listeners. Marquee TV is offering three months of their service for 99 cents. You get three months of all of this good stuff for 99 cents yeah. with the code SSOP. That cost seems absurdly low to me. Like, first, I expected it to be much higher given the quality of the content, but also 99 cents. You, you can't park next to a theater for 99 cents. Accurate. Also, if you watch Marquee TV, you get to see these shows maybe wearing your pajamas and hanging out with your cat yeah. or your dog. Yeah. It's a good way to sort of indulge your own curiosity. You can see all the performances of Hamlet or maybe the first 15 minutes of all of the performances of Hamlet and you don't have to rope your friends and family into all of that. Or you could watch Richard II over and over and over and over. <laughs> What's the best angle for David Tennant in Richard II? Trick question. All of them. <laughs> anyway, you definitely need to explore the website because there is a ton of really fun, fascinating engaging stuff on there. I went in specifically looking for Shakespeare and I found a ton of other things I wanted to watch. Yeah. You can keep up with what they're doing on social media at Marquee Arts TV. You can visit their website at marquee.tv. That's marquee.tv to get three months of their service for just 99 cents with the promo code SSOP. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. And now the show. Hello. Welcome to Strong Sets of Place. I'm David Humphreys. And I'm Melissa Jewelwan. In each episode, we explore one destination through the pages of five books we love. We search for books that are readable, engaging, opinionated, and tell you about the best. Fiction and non, contemporary and classic, these books help us understand the world and our place in it. We're on a trip around the globe, one great read at a time. Thanks for joining us.
Welcome to season one, episode one of Strong Sense of Place. It's our first episode. It is our first episode. Hi, everybody. Hello. <laughs> thanks so much for listening. And thanks for letting us into your home or car or run or whatever you're doing right now. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening and joining us on this exciting journey of books and travel. Today, we're going to visit Prague. We'll recommend five books that take you to Prague. And we have a special guest, travel writer Mark Baker. Mark has lived in and written about Central Europe for over 20 years. He and I talk about literary travel in Prague, the architecture and secrets of Prague, as well as his relationship with a Cold War era spy. Now, Prague is particularly special to us because since 2017, it's been our home. Yay! <laughs> yeah, yeah, we moved here. In 2010, we visited for the first time. From the United States. From the United States. From- After, I think I was the one who kind of was the driver behind us coming here because I was kind of obsessed with the movie Gotcha when I was a teenager. Now the CIA is after him. The Russians are trying to kill him. Russians? He's having the vacation of a lifetime, if he lives. That's why we're in Prague now? I think so. I I really do think so, because in the movie, there's this student in California who plays a paintball game on his college campus, and he travels to Paris, and he runs into this really sexy, beautiful girl with a Slavic accent, and she convinces him to go on a caper with her to East Germany. He thinks it's all pretend, but it turns out to actually be a real spy mission. And I think all of that romance and glamour and espionage and Slavic accents got stuck in my brain at a really formative time of my life. And now we live in Prague. And 40 years later. Kind of. (laughs) I feel like it was was a little more complicated than you watched a movie (laughs) and then we moved here. (laughs) But yeah. All right. So we decided to kick off our first season in Prague because we love the city and we like to get other people excited about it. And the Czech Republic is just rich with elements that make for great stories. We're going to start every episode by talking about the qualities of a place that make for good stories. So what are the characteristics that inspire stories that come from the people and the culture and the history and the mythology of that particular place? So let's talk about that. Mel, if you were coming to Prague, what would inspire you to write a story? I think the first thing that always jumps out for me when I look around Prague, or even when people are coming to visit us, is that it feels really magical. I've asked my Czech friends if they think that too, because like, is that just an outsider's perspective? The architecture looks like it's straight out of fairy tales, and the cobblestone alleys are twisty and turny, and you get lost all the time. And I wondered if it was just because I'm not from here. But confirmed, (laughs) even Czech people are like, yes, this place is very magical and special and beautiful. It's a little bit of a dark magic. It's not. Southern Germany has a castle that inspired the Disney castle. That's right. like beautiful and just so. And it is also magical, but it's very clearly, you know, good magic. And here it's like, maybe I'm not sure what's going to happen. And as an example, not far from our house, there's an, a train station that was built around the 1900s that is now abandoned. And you look at that thing and you pass it and you're like, it's totally haunted. Definitely haunted. Absolutely. Super cool. Yeah. And that's the kind of magic that Prague offers. 
I wonder if part of it is that there's so much turbulence in the Czech Republic's history, and that kind of adds a little shadow side to those more magical elements. Because if you look at the history of the Czech Republic, it started out not as one country, but as two kingdoms, the kingdoms of Moravia and Bohemia, which people might be familiar with those names. And there's a Slavic history here. So a lot of Slavic folklore, really dark characters like Marana, the goddess of night, and <laughs> my favorite, he who hides behind. Oh, yeah, that's creepy. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so that's how the Czech Republic kind of started out. And then it was part of the Habsburg Empire. Right. And then after the First World War, there was this shining moment where the Czech Republic, it was Czechoslovakia at the time, was an independent country and had actually a really close relationship with the United States and was very interested in democracy. And that's when the Czech language came into prominence and artists like Muka and Czech literature. And it was this beautiful moment where there was a strong feeling of nationalism and things that were really, really Czech. And then World War II happened and there was the Nazi occupation. And then after World War II, there was the communist regime. Yeah. So all of that adds this kind of shadow side to all of the beauty of the Czech Republic. Yeah. And that's really right for storytelling. There's a lot of interesting things to play with there. Yeah. And I think what happens is people from outside come here and they learn the history of the alchemy and the mythology and the witches and the ghosts and they see the beautiful architecture and they write these magical, fantastical novels. And then there's also people who are a little bit closer here, maybe native writers, and they're tackling some of those tougher historical things. Yes. So, lots of great stories that we're going to dive into in this episode. Yeah. Okay. So we start, as you know, in the vast history of Strong Sense of Place, we've started <laughs> every episode. Long, long tradition. Yes. By playing Two Truths and a Lie. So. I'm going to say three statements. Two of them are true. One of them is fiction. Mel doesn't know which of these are true. I do not. I haven't even seen them on a piece of paper. I know nothing. But this is a little hard because you live here. So I dig a little deep. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. First statement. So as you know, there's an astronomical clock. There is a giant clock that is attached to the old town hall. And it shows the time and the month and the date and the position of the moon and sunrise and twilight and the houses of the Zodiac. It is super complicated. There is a lot going on in that clock. And it was built in the 1400s. And then at the top of every hour, uh, there's a parade of apostles that come out uh, while a figure representing death strikes a bell. That is my favorite part. A skeleton comes out of a little door and rings a bell to let you know your time might be up. And it's a famous landmark here. I have yet to walk past it and not see at least 100 people sitting there waiting for death to strike the bell <laughs> and the parade of apostles. So all of that said, there was a, the first truth or lie is there's a working replica of the astronomical clock in Seoul, Korea. Okay. Okay. Second one, on average, every Czech person, man, woman, babies, the elderly, We'll drink two and a half kegs of beer every year. <laughs> that's 40 gallons. That's 350 pounds. That's 412 red solo cups of beer every year. Even the babies. Everybody. Babies, old people, everybody. Dogs? No. Dogs okay. were not included in this. All right. Third, Elton John is responsible for the lighting at the Prague Castle. 
Okay, that last one sounds like crazy enough to maybe be true. Uh-huh. And I do know that Czechs drink a lot of beer, yep. even the babies. I'm kidding, the babies don't drink. <laughs> we did, however, <laughs> the first time we went to the farmer's market on the Naplavka, which is the boardwalk along the river, at about nine o'clock on a Saturday morning. Very first time we went, the very first person I saw was an elderly gentleman drinking a beer. Yes. And I was like, okay, things are a little bit different. Uh-huh. Beer is literally cheaper than water here. It's also very good. And it's okay, very good. But back to the game. Yeah. Point is. I'm going to say the last one is a lie. The, El- the Elton John one is not true. It is not true. I won. You won. <laughs> the Rolling Stones are responsible for the lighting of the Prague Castle. <laughs> oh, well, that makes perfect sense, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so the story is. That in 1989, right after the fall of communism in the Czech Republic, Václav Havel became president and the very next spring the Rolling Stones came through because Václav Havel, who was a poet and a playwright. Generally amazing human. Generally amazing human was also friends with the Rolling Stones. (laughs) Of course he was. Yeah. Rolling Stones came to town. They're talking to Václav Havel. They're like, you know, the castle's really pretty and we like it and it's too bad you can't see it at night. And Václav Havel said, I've got a lot on my plate right now. <laughs> Just birthing a new country. Don't yeah. sweat it. <laughs> but if you guys want to do something about that, that would be cool. And the Rolling Stones went to their lighting director, spent $35,000 and lit the castle. And those systems are still used today. That's so cool. Isn't that amazing? Also, I'm kind of surprised it was only $35,000. Yeah. We will put a photo of the Prague Castle lit up at night in show notes so you can see just how pretty it is. Oh, and let's talk about the other ones. Uh, There is an astronomical clock in Seoul, Korea. It's attached to a Czech restaurant there (laughs) that has, uh, it looks like the old town hall here. And it's true that every Czech resident on average drinks 412 red solo cups of beer every year. Someone is definitely drinking my share of the beer. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, really, that's only a little bit more than one a day. So some people are doing the lifting for many others. Yes. So let's get to the main event. Let's talk about the books. We've got five books that are all set in Prague that represent Prague in different kinds of ways. Let's talk about book one. What's book one, Mel? I started with a crime story collection called Prague Noir, edited by Pavel Mandis. And I picked this for two reasons. One, all of the stories are written by Czech authors. And I really want in this project to read literature and novels and nonfiction written by people from the countries that we are talking about. But as outsiders, I think it's also useful to read stories by outsiders as well. So we get both perspectives. So I'm starting with a Czech story collection. The other thing I like about this collection is that the stories are set in every neighborhood in Prague and the location's actually listed under the title of the story. You can open up Google Maps, see where the story takes place, and kind of cross all of Prague visiting each neighborhood. You can look at photographs. It's a really fun way to get a sense of the city. Oh, that's cool. The other thing that's really fun is that the stories are arranged thematically. So there are stories about crime teams. There's a section on magical Prague and the supernatural. There's collection called Shadows of the Past that digs into World War II and communist history. And each category kind of looks at the culture and customs through the eyes of people who are marginalized. Criminals, cops, formers, witnesses. So it's a really different look at 
the city, kind of the shadowy side. Yeah. One of my favorite stories in the collection is The Dead Girl from the Haunted House. That's a great title. Right? Yeah. It's set in a carnival at the Prague Exhibition Grounds. And in the story, a cynical private detective is hired by the patriarch of a carnival family to investigate a murder. Great setup. Yeah. There are so many things in that sentence that are catnip for me. Yes. So the girl was killed in the haunted house. Okay. And everyone associated with the family and with the carnival is a suspect. The action kind of kicks off in a pub. There's tattooed carnival workers. I mean, it is everything I love about a creepy traveling carnival. Fantastic. So in real life, in Prague, there is, in fact, a carnival on the exhibition ground. Yes, there is. We've been there. We have been there. And even in the full sunlight of daytime, it's really colorful and really garish. And slightly creepy. And a little bit creepy. So uh, I know that you did not used to read short story collections and that you have recently started reading short story collections. That is correct. And I know that you have a secret about that. (laughs) I don't know if it's so much a secret. I think it's a secret. As a handy trick that I read from an author of short stories. Okay. So here is my advice. If you too sometimes struggle with short story collections, the idea is instead of reading the book from front to back the way you would with a novel, look at the table of contents, pick a story that appeals to you at that moment just based on its title and read that one and kind of jump around inside the book. Because if you read something from front to back, your brain is expecting a through line or a narrative with a beginning, middle, and end. And short story collections generally are not put together that way. Sometimes they are, but usually they're not. So if you jump around, you kind of get to enjoy the story in itself as it is. And that has completely changed how I feel about short story collections. I like reading like a short story between like a novel or something. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you get to the end of a novel and you're like, oh, that was so good. I don't want to read anything else. And then you read a short story just as sort of, I don't know, palate cleanser. Yeah, palate cleanser. It's like sorbet. It's like sorbet. So that's book one. Yes, that is Prog Noir, edited by Pavel Mandis. And I think it's a really fun way to get a sense of Prague's neighborhoods and the culture in a way that's really entertaining, not heavy-handed, and kind of shows you another side of the city that you might not get. What's book number two? Book number two is The Wall by Peter Sis. This is one of the best books about life during the Cold War that I've ever read. It's a, it's a children's book. So it's a full-on picture book with lovely images, and yet it describes hard times. So juxtaposition of imagery content. Yes. Nice. Yeah. The author of the book grew up in Prague during the 50s and 60s. He was here for compulsory political indoctrination classes. Mm, mm, Fun time. And mandatory Russian classes. He was here when children were encouraged to report on their families. So reporting on your family. That would be like a teacher might say to the kids, what was your dad doing last night? Who was over at your house? And then without really realizing what he's doing, the kid could really get his parents into trouble. Yeah, and then the teacher reports that to the state. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being the teacher who's being asked to do that? Yeah, it's pretty dark. Yeah. So he grew up as in that. And in the 60s, Czechoslovakia was an independent communist country. It wasn't part of the Soviet Union. It was its own thing. 
It was a communist country, but they also had blue jeans and rock music. The Beach Boys played here. It was all sort of wrapped in a package called socialism with a face. And then all of that was crushed by an invasion in 1968. The Soviet Union got worried that other countries were going to look at what the Czech Republic had and want that. And they were like, nope, we're not going to do that. And they, they rolled tanks in one day. So then what happened? Well, they installed different leadership and they tightened up travel quite a bit. And they took control of the media and they regulated speech. Just as a small example, the Soviets created what they called liquidation committees. That is a really ominous sounding title. Isn't it? What were they liquidating? So the liquidation committees are tasked with removing uh, crime fiction, horror and adventure stories, thrillers, romance novels and science fiction as soon as possible from every outlet. So basically all of our favorite genres. Yes. All of those. Just gone. So Sis grows up in that. Eventually he escapes his home country and he gets asylum in the United States. He was a graphic artist and he went to Los Angeles in 1984 to work on the Olympics. I'm not sure how that worked, but then he just left one day. There's an open door. I'm out. And he never came back. I feel like as Americans, it's really hard to imagine just going to another country and being like, okay, this is where I'm staying now because where I'm coming from is way too hard. Yeah. Yeah. I'm leaving absolutely everything behind. Yeah. So in the United States, he, he was an illustrator. He gets employment as an illustrator and he starts making children's books and he gets married and he settles down and he has kids. And in my imagination, one day those kids ask him about his history and he answers them by writing a children's book about it. He tells them the story of what happened to their dad and the book is called The Wall. It's got his art and his maps and pieces of his teenage journal entries. The book has a very accessible style and is also somehow very cool. It's uh, black and white lawn drawings with spot color, mostly red, but also has a lot of color when he's when the emotion kind of goes that way. We'll put some of the pages on the site so you can see for yourself. The book goes on to be a New York Times book review best illustrated book of the year and it won a Caldecott medal in 2008. So I've also read this book. Yeah. And this is a kid's book. But it's also really a book for adults, too. Yeah, it, I think it hits everybody. I'll say there's a Kindle version of this. Don't buy the Kindle version. You will want to enjoy the book as a full-color, tactical, real-world experience. Um, if you're interested in what it was like to grow up behind the Iron Curtain, I really can't recommend The Wall highly enough. That's The Wall by Peter Sis. All right, so that's book two. What's book three? My next pick also covers the time frame of the 1968 Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. It is called Prague Spring, and it's by the British author Simon Maurer. This is a mashup of a road trip story and a spy novel set in 1968 communist Czechoslovakia. But it's by Simon Maurer, who is kind of a literary author. Okay. So this is a literary character-driven story. Okay, so you're getting sort of the best of both worlds. You're getting an adventure story, but you're also getting the emotional insight of literature. Exactly. Simon Maurer is a really gifted writer. His descriptions are super evocative and stuff happens in this book. Okay. It's really fun. Very suspenseful. Okay. And it doesn't feel overly dramatic throughout most of it until suddenly 
we are in the deep end with these characters. Okay. So who are these people? The first two people we meet are our road trip characters. They are two Oxford students, a really spoiled girl, and a boy who, bless his heart, is just desperately smitten with her. He's pretty and smart and kind of sarcastic, and he is all in on this girl. So he follows his crush into trouble. (laughs) He definitely does. Yeah. So they're drinking in a pub one day, and they decide that they're going to spend the summer backpacking together to Italy. And he's over the moon. Sure. Because they're going to Italy. As you would be. Yeah. Bathing suits, hot weather, sexy times. It's all going to happen. Yeah. So they head out on their trip and it goes about how you would expect. They drink a little too much. They flirt with each other. They get into fights. They meet other people on the road because, again, it's the 60s. Things are groovy, man. Yeah. It's all happening. Okay. And as he continues to pursue her, she kind of advances and retreats just enough to keep him on the hook. And to keep us on the hook. Like, we want to know what is going to happen to these people. Okay. And then at one point, before they're going to cross over into Italy, she decides she wants to go to communist Czechoslovakia. And he does not want to do that. Number one, it's dangerous and scary. Yeah. And number two, Italy, beach, wine, sun, romance. This is his expectation. But she kind of goads him into it. And they decide to go to communist Czechoslovakia. So she's interested in the Czech Republic. I think she's just really into the idea of adventure and doing things that are kind of taboo. All right. So she's a little dangerous. She's a little dangerous. Okay. There's this really excellent scene where they are physically crossing the border from Germany into Czechoslovakia. And it's very stressful and tense because they're going from a land of freedom to guns border crossings, the unknown. Simon Maurer did a really awesome job kind of making you feel how incredibly tense that would be if you were in that situation. Yeah. I mean, we have passports and visas and I still get a little anxious when we're crossing borders. I think that's pulled over from watching the movie Gotcha. Yeah. Well, you're walking through the Paris airport and you see guys walking around with big rifles and it's a little... Yeah. A little intimidating. Yeah. So those are our road trip characters. Meanwhile, in Prague we meet our other set of characters. There's a British diplomat, and he has fallen in with a group of Czech students who really want a revolution, including a sexy Czech girl named Lenka. And this is significant because as an employee of a foreign government in Czechoslovakia, he is not supposed to be getting involved in politics. Of course. But he does because he can't resist Lenka. And he, he, of course agrees with some of their ideas, even though he's not supposed to. Yeah. So eventually, through happenstance, the backpackers and the revolutionaries all meet up together in Prague and become friends and hang out and get to know each other. And that's kind of the central part of the book where we're meeting them and getting to see them go on a camping trip together and having parties and making out. Like, it's the 60s. Yeah, okay. Everyone's having fun. They're young. All right. So the first half of the book's kind of a road trip through... Great Britain and then Europe and then on to the Czech Republic. And then the tilt happens. Then the tilt happens because the Soviets invaded Prague in 1968. Right. And the consequences of what everyone has been doing finally catch up with them. And that's when things get really tense. How big is this book? It sounds big. It's about 400 pages. Oh, all right. Yeah. Mauer packs a lot into... I mean, you'd have to. Yeah. Yeah. So this book has intrigue and spycraft, romantic sparks, Bugged rooms, 
secret conversations, dangerous adventures, and really awesome descriptions of Prague that put you right here at a really remarkable time in its history. Sounds like a James Bond novel with a lot of well-written romance and that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 It's got lots of action, but also really big feeling. Well, that sounds great. But there was one kind of lighthearted thing that I really liked. What's that? After the invasion, everyone who was not Czech was trying to get out of Prague. Yeah, of course. The roads were jammed with cars. Planes were trying to take off from the airport. And a famous band was trapped on the tarmac at the airport for a while. Which famous band? It was the Moody Blues. Nights in white satin Never reaching the end They were in Prague for a TV show, and they taped their segment just a few hours before the tanks rolled into Wenceslas Square. Can you imagine? You're here to just play your song and have a show and move on, and then you're caught in the overnight invasion and you're on the wrong side of the tanks? Yeah, and like we're talking about the Moody Blues. Like This is a groovy band wearing like velvet suits and spreading the word of love. Bell bottoms. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So there's this really incredible video on YouTube of their performance on the Charles Bridge, lip syncing to their song with like cute Czech teenagers in the background. And it's the video on its own is pretty amazing time capsule. Yeah. But then if you think about the fact that just a few hours later, there was an invasion and the Moody Blues were literally stranded at the airport trying to get out. Really amazing yeah, and impactful. All of that can be found in Prague Spring by Simon Maurer. I also want to mention he has another novel set in the Czech Republic called The Glass Room, which takes place in Brno, which is the second largest city in the Czech Republic. Yep. And that story centers around a mid-century modern house where this family lived and went through all of the upheaval of the 20th century. And the house is actually a character in the story. Really, really well done and really gripping. We'll put a link to that in show notes so you can check that out too. Okay. All right. We're coming up on our final books. Yes. Dave. Yes. What is your next pick? My book is Gotland, Mostly True Stories from Half of Czechoslovakia, written by an author whose name I will now butcher. That name is Mariusz Szczygiel. Mariusz Szczygiel. He's a Polish investigative journalist. He wanted to explore everything that the Czech Republic is and has been it's a series of essays. Uh, Shizgiel paints pictures of many different characters and times. The first essay is about the Bada family. They now run the Bada Shoe Empire, which employs about 90,000 people worldwide. I actually just bought my first pair of Bata boots this year. Yeah, they're huge. It's an not enormous... Not my boots. My boots are not huge. My boots are totally normal size. <laughs> no, I'm... <laughs> I meant the bottom. I mean, I know my feet are a little big for my height, but that was kind of cruel, Dave. Gigantic feet. <laughs> the Batas. The Batas. Are hugely successful. Yes, that's right. The Batas are hugely successful. They started in absolute poverty in a cottage with a dirt floor, destitute, not a dime to their name. They don't have dimes here, but you get the idea. In 1904, Thomas Bata came to the U.S. and he worked in one of Henry Ford's plants and he brought the ideas of assembly line back to the Czech Republic, and he opened a shoe factory based on that. And the family revolutionized shoe manufacturer in Europe. Just changed the whole game. Right on. Yep. Because prior to that, they were, everyone was making shoes by hand. Yes, right. right. 
little every pair of shoes was custom made. Yes. Geppetto. Everyone was making little shoes on little tiny box stands. And then, then he was like, you know what? We should do it this way. And yeah. Smart. Yeah. And they did all of that right in the middle of the turbulence of recent Czech history. So in the 30s, some of the Czech people accused them of being Nazis and they had their factories taken away by Soviets. Yeah, you kind of hear that story a lot here where people's lives were just rewritten by the Nazi occupation and then the um, communist regime. It's like everyone's lives kind of took a little pause for 40 or 50 years. Yeah. Well, and then reset entirely again when capitalism came back in 1989. So the Badas fled to the U.S. and then to South America where they reestablished their business. And then in 1989, after the fall of communism, Václav Havel, previously mentioned president, asked Bada to return. The members of the family were greeted as heroes when they returned to the town they created. That must have been something to have the new Democratic president invite you to come back to your home country. And then be welcomed as heroes in your own Hometown. Ah, that's nice. Really nice. So Shishgil writes the essay about the Bada family in these short one to four paragraph chunks. And he gives you just a little picture of what's happening. And then he moves on to the next bit. And that first essay for me is alone reason enough to get the book and read it. It's just, it's a great story and it's well told. And what else is in there for people who want to read more than one story in a collection? All right. So through the book, you go on to meet a whole lot of different Czech characters. You meet um, Lita Barova who's an actress who was also the mistress of Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels. You hear about how that changed her life? I'm guessing not well. Yeah, it didn't turn out well for Lita. Um, You also meet Yaroslava Mozarova, who's both an expert in skin grafting and also translated 44 Dick Francis novels into Czech. (laughs) That is a really interesting combination of skills. Isn't it? Skin grafting and translation. Yes. Doctor of Skin Grafting, and she's also, Dick Francis is more popular than Agatha Christie. Yeah, I was going to say, when you go into a used bookstore here, you see a lot of Dick Francis paperbacks on the shelf. She's why. And I actually, I love Dick Francis. You can find write-ups of some of his books on strongsenseofplace.com. And I actually asked my Czech teacher if she thought I could buy a Dick Francis novel in Czech and use that during my lessons to try to increase my vocabulary. Yeah. How did she take that? Yeah, she said no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so back to Gotland and not my Czech lessons. Yes. What does that title mean? Gotland. It's about goats. (laughs) The book's title references Karl Gott. Gott was a popular singer in the Czech Republic who somehow weathered the Nazis and the communists and capitalism. He died just a little while ago. Uh, He's been called... The Czech Elvis. So in 2006, he opened his own museum, Gotland, just outside of Prague, and he modeled it on Elvis Presley's Graceland. Yeah, we pour one out for, for Carl. So the book, I kept wanting to turn to you and be like, um, read bits of the book out loud even while you were reading your own book or maybe even sleeping (laughs) that's how good this book is it's a you should wake up and listen to this awesome phrase book it's really great uh it's gotland it's mostly true tales from half of czechoslovakia it's by marius shigil marius my final pick is hhhh by the french author 
Laurent Bonnet. And I could summarize this book by saying it's historical fiction about the assassination of a Nazi during World War II. Yeah, that would be enough to get me to read it. But that doesn't really describe everything that's cool about this book. This is an amazing book. So stay with me here. Okay. It's written like a memoir by an author who's writing a historical novel about the assassination. So the author has kind of written himself in as a character. A little bit, Lauren yes. Bonet has said, this is my experience doing the research of writing this book. Yeah, Lauren Bonet is kind of acting like a Greek chorus and commenting on the action. Right. And his asides and his footnotes add a little bit of humor and some warmth to what otherwise could be like a really heavy story. It's kind of like you and he are having a discussion about what's happening in the book while it's going on. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so unless people are into Czech or World War II history, they might not know who Reinhard Heydrich was. I feel like I didn't really learn about him when I learned about World War II in school. He was a Nazi. He was tall and blonde and very clever and super ambitious and really, really cruel. Just to tell you some of his nicknames. Okay. The Butcher of Prague. Mm Mm-hmm. The Blonde Beast. Mm. And Hitler had a nickname for him. Okay. Mm-hmm. The Man with the Iron Heart. Mm. Yeah. And, so, and these, he, he liked all of those nicknames and oh, was yeah. like walking around being like, check me out. I'm the Butcher of Prague. Yes. Yeah. He, they were definitely considered compliments. Yeah. So it's 1942 and Prague is under the rule of Heydrich. He is the big bad boss and Hitler loves him mm. because He's deporting Jews. He's coercing people into informing on their neighbors. He's making life miserable for everyone who lives in Prague. So an evil Nazi doing evil Nazi stuff. Yes. What happens then? So then the Czech government in exile in Britain decides that he needs to be assassinated. Okay. How are they going to do that? They recruited two young men that came to be known as the parachutists. And I want to say their names to honor them, even though sometimes... Names and podcasts are a little confusing. So we'll just take a moment and raise a glass to Josef Gabchik, who was a Slovak factory worker, and Jan Kubisch, who was a Czech soldier. Those two were selected because they represented both halves of Czechoslovakia, a Czech person and a Slovak person. So it's sort of a symbolic position. Yes. And then they sent them to England for training, and they got all kinds of weapons and espionage training. And then the plan was... They were going to fly them over the Czech countryside and they would jump out of the plane with parachutes and they would make their way to Prague with the help of the resistance and they would kill Reinhard Heydrich. Oh, and that's exactly what happened, right? Everybody, goodness prevailed. Everybody lived happily ever after. Good night. Thanks for coming. That's right. That's it. We're done. It would be great if that's what happened. (laughs) It is not a spoiler to say a lot of people worked really hard on this plan and then lots of things went wrong. So I don't want to give away the big bang of the story if people are not familiar. So that's all I'm going to say about the plot plot. Okay. But I will say that this thing is a page turner, even though it's like an 80-year-old story. Part of the reason this thing is so suspenseful is because of the way it's written. It's 326 pages long, but it has 257 chapters. Whoa. Yeah. Some of the chapters are only one to two pages each. And what this does is like it really keeps the action moving and it makes it feel really fresh and really dramatic. Yeah, I really like reading books like that. 
one of the chapters is only one sentence long. No. It's, and I think like the, I really admire the confidence of a writer that puts down one sentence and is like, and that's the chapter. Yep. Done for today. This is the only way the story can be told. <laughs> it's brilliant. I think it's really brilliant. That's great. So what's up with that title? H-H-H-H. Yeah. And it's capital H, capital H, little h, capital H. Wow. Just to be really specific. Yeah. Um, Reinhard Heydrich was the right-hand man to Heinrich Himmler, who is head of the SS. Okay. And the book's title stands for Himmler's Hern Heist Heydrich, which means Himmler's brain is called Heydrich. Okay, so Heydrich is the engine behind Himmler. Yes. And Himmler was right next to Hitler. Yeah. I really, really loved this book. The author just vividly describes streets and churches and parks and squares and restaurants in Prague. And most of them are still here today. Yeah. So you're just kind of transported to this particular place and time in history. It's really gripping and really moving. I felt like I was in the room where these decisions were being made. So like even talking about it now, my palms are a little sweaty. <laughs> it's a really <laughs> intense story. Um, I will say, of course, this is World War II book. And there are some pretty brutal descriptions of the Holocaust. So okay. if you know that kind of stuff upsets you, tread lightly. Right. Because all of his descriptions are very vivid. Yes. Okay. Oh, I should also mention that there's a brilliant nonfiction book about the same topic that I also read called The Assassination of Reinhard Heydrich by Callum MacDonald. And that's a much more straightforward, fact-based look at the story. And it was remarkable to me when I read both of them how closely Laurent Benet was able to stay to the facts of the story while also crafting this amazing, moving narrative around the facts. So both of them are great. Okay, cool. So those are five books we love set in Prague. Visit our show notes at strongsenseofplays.com for links and details. Uh, Mel, can you talk about the special blog post you wrote for this episode? I may have gone a little crazy with the Prague content for this episode. <laughs> Over the course of our time visiting and moving here, I have read 35 books set in Prague. Well, that's crazy. <laughs> it's a lot. I counted them. Yeah. Um, I recommend 15 novels that capture the magic of Prague, and those are in a blog post on strongsenseofplace.com. All right. We also have a Czech-inspired recipe. We have a guide, six unusual travel guides to Prague that even if you're not visiting here are worth reading because they have so much cultural and historical and mythological information. We also have a story about our search for the best strudel in town, a story about the Strahov Monastery Library, which, by the way, has a cabinet of curiosities. It does. It's so cool. There's also a horn of a narwhal is there. A giant crab. Little books made out of trees. Yeah, it's a very magical place. And we have lots of photos and the story of how, you know, what kinds of things you'll see in the library yep. on our website. And also a little write up of our favorite literary cafe and much, much more. Next up, I'm talking to Mark Baker about vintage bookstores, spies, and the ghosts of Prague. I'm here with Mark Baker. Mark was a journalist for 20 years covering Central and Eastern Europe for The Economist and Bloomberg News. He's been a travel writer for the last two decades, writing for publishers that include Lonely Planet, Farmers, and Fodors. 
and magazines that include the Wall Street Journal and National Geographic Traveler. Mark, thanks for joining us. Hey, David. Thank you very much. So uh, you've been a traveler and you've lived in Prague on and off for a long time, right? 30 years or so? Yeah, really. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to tell people the 30 years part, you know, it's, 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 you know I, my, I go with more than 10 or more than 20 right now. That's my, oh, that's, that's how we'll I just, it. we'll just say a while. And, uh, <laughs> uh, so what is, what's your pitch on people who have never been to Prague? Why should people come to Prague? That's a great question. I think Prague has two you know, if you want to use marketing speak, unique selling points, or for me, two unique aspects of its charm. And one is pretty obvious. Um, I think Prague, Prague's best asset really is the architecture. I think that is it. You know, if you, if you are a fan of European architecture, if you know something about European architecture, you know, you can find everything from Romanesque, in the very earliest buildings, through Gothic, through the Renaissance, through Baroque, through the neoclassical period of the 19th century, and then some of the more modern forms like Art Nouveau and communist architecture in the 20th century. Um, you know, there are not many big cities in Europe that survived World War II entirely intact, or say yeah. mostly intact. And Prague is one of those rare cities. So you can really see how a city developed and unfolded through the Middle Ages and into modern times. And if you're into that kind of thing, then Prague is really your town. Yeah. And it's, uh, you can often find those things right next to each other. Yes. Like you can look down the square and see the development of architecture over time. Absolutely. I, I always think that if you ever really imagined how a medieval cityscape looked, you know, like a 13th century or 14th century cityscape really looked to people who are coming from the provinces in their stagecoaches or on their horseback, come through the gates and see the towers in the same way that we look at a city like New York City or Dubai or Hong Kong today, that's how they would have looked at Prague in the 14th century. And I think it's really, it's really interesting to see that perspective. Absolutely. So you mentioned there were two. Yeah. Okay. The second one is something a little bit harder to describe, and you really have to use your imagination to get to it. But there's a lot of secrets that Prague has hidden over those centuries. So for me, the city has a lot of mystery, you know, maybe for lack of a better term. You know, you think about the Austrians, the Habsburgs were here for 400 years or so. And that was a kind of a benign dictatorship in a sense. And then you had the Nazi occupation, of course, that wasn't so benign at all. And then you had four decades of communism, you know, in modern times, again, not very benign, but, but hid a lot of, a lot of things went on in Prague that gives the city to me still a kind of very spooky aspect, a very mysterious aspect. So I'm always looking for ghosts, you know, when I'm walking around Prague. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> Even yeah, conjuring them up in my own mind as I am right now, you know, for the podcast yeah. and for your listeners. But yeah, but I really for sure. do feel it when I walk around. Every place has something. Even 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 Wenceslas Square, you know, the big square right in the center of Prague. Um, you know, I remember going there back in the day in the 1980s when I was working as a journalist and um, I had a couple of interactions with some people who would later turn up on spy lists, etc. And so maybe that kind of gave me that feeling that I was always being watched and recorded right. when I was down there. 
And there was always a little bit more than meets the eye that was going on on the public streets. Yeah. And you were here early enough that that was in part true. Yes. Right. Yeah. When I, I was a journalist, I was covering Prague um, for the Economist Group, the magazine and some of their other publications based in Vienna at the time. So we're going back to 1988 or 89, just before the Velvet Revolution of 1989. Yeah. And I would come up here and I didn't speak Czech at the time. I didn't really know much about the Czech, Czechoslovakia at the time. Um, so I had to work through a translator and a fixer, a person that would help me translate, arrange my meetings and pick me up and drop me off and stuff like that. And then I only found out many years later that he was actually a relatively high ranking member of the Czechoslovak security services. And his really? job was really to watch over me. Yeah, it gave me goosebumps when I found out about that. I only found out about that like in 2012 when I Googled the guy's name, like no what, whatever happened to him. And then wow. I, I, found, I found a very long report uh, online in Czech, of course, um, by an institute, a military institute here in Prague. And the headline was that person's name, colon, high ranking member of the state security service and journalist. And and I was, wow. and as soon as I read that, my blood ran went cold. Yeah, that's so spooky. It is that's so spooky. amazing. Yeah. So <laughs> we had a good relationship at the time. He was my translator. He was my my friend in quotation marks, if you will. But, um, you know, and at the time I always knew probably something was going on like that, but I never really thought about it that much. But then just to read, you know, the blood curdling page after page of this report, it's like this guy, yeah. was, this guy was tough. You know, it was yeah. really his job. Anyway, so Maybe I have more ghosts, you know, than most people would coming to Prague, but still. <laughs> I think you do, yeah. yeah. So what part of Prague do you think is the most haunted? Great question. Maybe the part that I actually live in. It's a residential area called Bubanec. Yeah. And um, we're talking about the most hidden right now, modern times, right? Because yeah. this was one of the more elegant parts of town. I'm not saying that my apartment is particularly elegant, but... Um, it was the first one of the one of the most important suburbs in the industrialization process. So a lot of millionaires and, and billionaires for their times would build their mansions in this part of town. And this is still where the most of the embassies are located and the ambassadors residences, including the United States ambassadors residence, which is a beautiful mansion from the 1920s. Anyway, um, during the during the World War II German occupation, the Nazi occupation, because of all the villas and mansions in this part of town, all the Nazis wanted to live here. So most of these big buildings during the Nazi occupation were actually occupied by, you know, real Nazis, you know, for yeah. lack of a better term. And now, after the communist, um, you know, after communism came to Czechoslovakia in 1948, the Soviet Union and now the Russian Federation maintain all of their buildings in this part of town. So we like to call it Little Moscow. It's it's quite stark. So when I walk around these haunt, I, I think of these as haunted mansions because some of them are owned by the Russians but are still empty to this day and wonder what's oh, really? going on in there. Yeah, it's it's nuts. There's a train station near where we live that has been abandoned for a long time and it's crumbling and falling apart. And every time I walk past it. Uh, it you know it just totally looks haunted uh yeah and you, you and you do wonder what the backstory is right why is absolutely nobody taking advantage of this really good resource here every you know? time i see an abandoned building i think of that you know who what story lived here why is this not being fixed up in some way who owns the place now yeah you know? so um 
I know you're a lover of books. I know you probably have book-loving friends. If your book-loving friends come to Prague, what do you recommend that they do? So when they would come to Prague or tell me my book-loving friend would say, hey, I'm coming to Prague. Uh, what do you think I should do? First, I would say, try to get into some of the literature. Of course, there's always Milan Kundera. You know, his books are widely yeah. available in any bookshop. And he writes, you know, whether you like him or don't, don't like him or like some of aspects of his style or not, there's no denying that he's a very, very talented storyteller. And he manages to mix very high concept philosophical issues with very low brow love affairs and relationship triangles and all kinds of stuff that, you know, that keep the, um, you know, that keep the reading kind of fun. You know, don't, you don't, not just completely buried all in the very high concept stuff. So, yeah. so that's what I would first do. And then try to, you know, walk around town without any kind of necessarily any type of real itinerary in your mind. Um, another thing you might want to do is um, maybe download some of the old music, pop music from the 1960s or the 1970s yes. and create a kind of soundscape in your mind. And with those kind of fun stories, just try to enjoy the city, you know, and, and try to absorb the aspects of the city from the books that you've read. You know, if you're reading Klima, you might listen to some pop music from the 1960s or something like that or 1970s. Yeah, that's a fantastic travel trip. I'd love putting together a playlist for a place that I'm about to visit that I think is appropriate to the location and then listening to it while you're exploring that uh, environment is... right. It's such a great experience. If you have no idea where to start, like where, where, what is a Czech pop star from the 1960s? Who are they? All you would have to do is just Google those words, Czech pop star 1960s. Or something. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, all kinds of YouTube videos will come up. You can click around and see, um, you know, there's some, they made some really, really great and very evocative music that even today, when you hear it on the streets, it takes you right back 50 years ago. Yeah. Okay. So, Walking around town uh, and listening, uh, and are there any locations you recommend that they stop into? You mean like a, as a book lover? Well, we talked a little bit about the Antiquariati, you know, those um, old old bookstores, etc. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I think that if you're really a book lover, you know, there are some modern bookstores. You know, I used to be a bookstore owner in this town, so I, I know a little bit about the book trade here. And, you know, you can pick up books here. So don't, you know, I mean, it's nice to bring your own books especially about Prague, but, uh, but even if you arrive empty handed, you can go to a modern bookstore somewhere and find some good Czech literature and English translation. So you'll have something to read, but if you really want to kind of get into the book world a little bit, then you really need to stop off at one of these used bookstores that you find all over town. You know, they're called Antiquariat. Um, you know, it means basically used bookstore, but, but you have to think a little bit beyond books when you think about these stores. These, uh, these shops, they specialize in basically any memory that can be put to paper. So they have books, of course, but they also sell posters, old posters and old lithographs. They sell maps. They sell postcards. You know, it's just an amazing world of stepping back into time. And I love these shops and Prague is filled with them. They're in every district, in every neighborhood. You know, I guess a lot of people have just over the years donated their books or whatever they had in their family collections. And um, and so there's still a really rich um, supply of this type of historical material on paper in all forms. And it's just so much fun to stand in one of these shops 
and kind of pick up the books and go through them and, and read a little bit. Of course, a lot of the books are in Czech, so no point in reading too much about it. But there's also posters and, as I said, all kinds of other things that you can see. And I, th- I think that that's something that my book lover friend would really enjoy doing. Yeah, I totally agree. There's there's a you get maps and posters and book plates and all sorts of great stuff, and they make great souvenirs and great gifts, and um, it's just so fun. Yeah, exactly. So, are you ready for the speed round? Yeah, go for it. Here we go. First question: Carry on or checked baggage? I'm a checked baggage guy. Must haves in your suitcase or carry on? Must have in your carry on is. Uh, clean underwear and a clean t-shirt because you never know when that check bag is going to get lost. <laughs> Good tip. Uh, ask for directions or get lost. Absolutely get lost. How do you document your trips? With my iPhone. If you could uh, go right now to a train station or airport and visit another place, where would you go? I got Bucharest on the mind right now. Uh, what's your favorite format for books? Paperback, hardcover, audiobook, ebook? I'll paperback. Fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction. If you could unread one book, what book would it be? Oh, dear. Oh, man. That's a good one. That's a really good one. I would say almost any book that I had to read for grad school on Eastern European <laughs> political history. <laughs> um, some of the books that I had to read to in order to write my thesis to graduate, which, of course, yeah. I graduated in the 80s and my thesis was on communist eastern europe and it totally unraveled a few years later so all that reading and all that money down the drain but hey. <laughs> <laughs> um are you a book quitter or a book sticker i'm a book quitter okay and uh finally if you could magically transport yourself into any book fiction or non-fiction what book would it be it would have to be between the woods and the water patrick lee for Moore's. Uh, epic travel novel when he was a young man in the 1930s walking through Transylvania on his way to the Danube. Wow, that's a great answer. That's an amazing <laughs> book. Just the that people sounds... that he that he ran into, just the, the the tribal people that he ran into, the different nationalities that were living in that part of Europe, which of course now vanished because of the wars and Ceausescu and all that stuff. But that just seems like, and he's also a very embellishing and good writer. Of course, he embellished a lot, perhaps, but it would just be amazing to have that chance to re- retrace in the time, you know, with the means of transportation that he used, but basically on horseback and on foot yeah. through that through that uh, wilderness of Transylvania back then. I love that answer. It's been great talking with you. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, David, I really enjoyed it. You can follow Mark and his many adventures at markbakerprog.com. Don't miss out on his 10 places to visit in 2020. It's full of tempting places to add to your wish list. Thanks again. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to Strong Sense of Place. For more on Prague, including the books we've discussed today, more book recommendations, information about our guest, and literary landmarks in Prague, visit our website at strongsenseofplace.com. Be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter. It's packed with our favorite book and travel-related things. And please, please join us on Instagram for photos, illustrations, short book reviews, and other things we love. We are at Strong Sense Of. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate it, review it, and tell a friend. And don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Mel, what are we covering in our next show? We are jumping out of the fire and into the frying pan with a look at life behind the scenes in restaurants. Thanks for listening, everybody.